All right. Good morning, Park Near North. How we doing? All right. I love the energy. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask a little participation from the crowd. Ooh, I see some familiar faces. I'm really excited about this. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of exercise. You guys ready? Have you stretched this morning? That's great. Okay. Uh, now, uh, we're not playing a game. They gave me a, a clock in the back of the room, so we don't have time for a game, I know. It's really sad. We love games and student ministry, but I'm going to do an exercise. Um, and so first of all, I do want to welcome all the guests in the room, all the kids from our Loop Kids ministry, all our teenagers from Students at Park. Actually, they're probably watching online, uh, let's be honest. Uh, but uh, I do want to welcome you guys. I'm super glad you're with us today. But for all the grown-ups in the room, I'm going to ask you to participate with me a little bit, okay? All right, so I'm going to say a statement And if you agree with what I say, I just need you to stand up and remain standing just for a minute. I know it's awkward, but just give me a break. Just, yeah. All right. Uh, So if you believe in this statement, if you stand with the statement, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And that is that our guests, these kids and teens in the room and watching at home, that they're not only the future of the church, but they are in fact right now the emerging church. That is that God is already using them in some big ways, and we honestly have a lot we could learn from them. Go ahead and stand up, take to your feet, show them some love. That's what I'm loving, yes. All right, now for all the kids in the room, I want you to take a look around, all right? We'll even get a camera to pan for those that are watching at home. Uh, These are your people. This is your family, your church, your tribe. There is a story in the book of Jeremiah. It's a, it's a story of a young man. He's being called. God is saying, you're going to do some really big things. And Jeremiah, the first thing he says in this book is like, I can't do this. I'm too young. Don't, don't put me out there. And God says, don't, don't say that. If you're not too young, wherever you go, whatever you do, I'm going to be with you. And in the same sentiment, kids, teens, if God's with you, so are we. So remember that. Now, before you guys take a seat, Joanna Kitchener, I know you're out here. So can we pass around the Loop uh, Kids application for all these people to sign up as Loop workers? Thanks, guys, for your service. All right, you guys can take a seat. Uh, that was great. So if you, uh, if you actually are interested in serving with our uh, Loop Kids ministry, it's a great ministry to serve in. Uh, you, can ten- you can do that text prompt, uh, Park Connect to 22333. So once again, if we've never met, my name is David Pockovitz. I do have the privilege to serve here overseeing our ministry to teenagers and families. Um, I do want to acknowledge that we're going to be sharing some stuff about kids today. Uh, It's going to be great. It's going to be encouraging. Uh, But also, my heart is really heavy this week. Um, Hearing about the tragedy at Robb Elementary School, uh, my prayer is today that you not only would leave Um, a little bit convicted, but also encouraged as we seek to embody the hope of Jesus in a world in despair. Oh, that was really loud. Excuse me. Uh, So a part of my responsibility is to lead a global trip every summer with our teenagers to Bulgaria. So here in about a month, I will be able to lead a group of teens. We're really excited. We're pumped about this. And we've been doing this for a number of years. And 2008, we were about three days into our trip where we had finally arrived at our uh, destination, the small village of Smolian in the southern reaches of Bulgaria. And we pull up into the parking lot and park next to a car that had the license plate 
from Illinois. All right, so we traveled around the world, and at first I had to do a double take, because like my mind was so used to seeing it, it's like, oh yeah, like whatever. But then I was like, wait, that's not supposed to be here, right? That does not belong here. So immediately our team, we began to lose our mind. We began waving, kind of like stalking the car, like who's driving this car? Is it someone we know, familiarity, connection, maybe someone famous? That would be dope, right? Uh, but as it ends up, the man that was driving the car, he was not from Illinois, and he, uh, he seemed to give off a vibe that the car was acquired through some very sketchy means. <laughs> but this underlined this core innate desire that every single person has, the longing for community, a people, a tribe, that we all want to be connected, and there are a number of things that can connect us. This is why when we travel and find someone from at least the general vicinity, whether it be city or even state, we immediately form a connection. Uh, I'm originally from Texas. This happens to me all the time. I meet a fellow Texan, and it's like we form this clique, right? We just bond on everything Texas. Bluebell ice cream and brisket. It's great. Um, We also make uh, similar connections to like very obvious things. I connect to tall people in crowds, right? We make eye contact, we're ahead above everyone else, and it's like nonverbal, we express our nonverbal frustration for how slow short people are. (laughs) So you can form a connection over obvious things, but the greatest connections are formed from those non-visible traits, unaccomplished gold, even shared experiences. They form this rich type of community. But the reality is, is more today than ever, we are robbed of these connections to others. Specifically in our culture, because of the rise of individualism and the progression of technology, it has left us feeling less known, less heard, less valued. In 2014, the Huffington Post, they featured an article entitled, I Miss the Village. And this truly gets after this. I wish I could read the whole thing, um, but for the sake of time, here's just an excerpt. Every day I go about my life, drive my children to and fro, make breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I change my baby's diapers in my four-walled house while the world around me buzzes busy and fast. My little plays on the floor and I watch him pluck toy after toy in the large box in the corner of the room. And although my life is rich with many things, I think of you because I miss the village. I miss the village I never had, the one with mothers doing their washing side by side, clucking and laughing hysterically, tired in body but quick in spirit. We know each other so well, annoying one another from time to time, but never staying mad long enough uh, at one another because the truth is we need each other. You know, my, you know me and I know you. I know your children and you know mine. But not just on a surface level, favorite foods, games and such, but real, true knowledge of the soul that flickers behind the eyes. I trust them in your arms as much as you trust them in mine. And they'd respect you and heed your no. Man, that's rich, isn't it? We have this root desire for community, but even more than that, our kids... Our teens, they need this. The developmental professionals at the Search Institute, they've laid out 40 developmental assets that every child needs to be a healthy, functioning member of society. And most of these assets explore the same root need for a child to be known, heard, and understood by not just their parents, but by a group of caring adults. And for those that are new to the discussion, 
There is currently a mental health crisis among our teens and children. We see that kids are feeling more anxious than ever, more overwhelmed by the expectations we're placing on them. And they're more likely to turn to destructive habits because of this weight. And if decades of research has taught us one thing, it's that they need a tribe. We've heard this familiar language that it takes a village to raise a child, but for the sake of clarity, we should shift our language a little bit. Because normally when we talk about a village, it's centered around a geographic location. I'd like to propose that tribe is a much better term. Um, A tribe, it moves due to the various needs and changing seasons. So today I'd like to appeal to you that every kid needs a tribe and how this is deeply connected to the mission of God. Would you guys pray with me? God, we praise you for you are the God who created relationships. You conceived the idea of family. You embodied the first community. And you gave us each the gift of connection. But we know that your design has greatly been disturbed. Our relationships are broken. Our intentions, they're convoluted. And our bonds have been destroyed. So we pray in this space, in this time, that you would allow us to understand the value of a child. And equally, that you would empower us to be the community of faith that has placed us here in this moment to change the story of kids throughout our city. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So today we'll be opening up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You'll find a Bible uh, underneath your seat or the seat in front of you somewhere. Just dig around a little bit. Um, We're going to see how God's greatest commandment is deeply tied to God's vision that every kid needs a tribe. And for the sake of clarity, I know I'm going to be using the word kid, but let's classify that as anyone that's not an adult. You guys can define that as you will. Um, While you're turning there, I'd love to give you the skinny on Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is the fifth book of the Bible. It is the final episode of the Moses saga. And Deuteronomy is the sermon that Moses gives the nation of Israel before his death and their transition into the promised land. So in a very real way, Moses is trying to rally up his people. He's trying to get in his last remarks before he hangs up his cleats and heads to glory. And in chapter 6, we're introduced to a command that becomes one of the most repeated scriptures throughout human history. You've likely heard this before. It's even a scripture we use in baby dedication and parenting classes. Uh, But today, we're looking at it from a new angle. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. It goes like this. Hear. Now, before we go anywhere any further, I'd like to focus on this word here real quick. This passage is commonly referred to as the Shema because that is the very first word we read in the Hebrew. The word here, Shema, is not only a call to listen, but a call to respond, to act in obedience. So our precursor to everything else we'll talk about is the reality that every scripture that we experience It's not just a call to listen, but a call to respond. It's like God is asking you these two questions. Are you listening and are you ready to act? Are you ready to be moved? Let's keep going. Listen, O Israel. Okay, press pause one more time. I'm not going to do this with all 113 words we're about to read, but just for the sake of clarity, we need to pause once again. Israel is a country, the people of God. Here the Lord speaks through one man to a people, and more specifically, the culmination of 12 tribes. 12 tribes that descended from 12 sons, that descended from one man, Israel, formerly known as Jacob, and now they take on the identity of the people of God. Not as 12 groups, 
not as two million individuals, but one collective identity. The same could be true of our community this morning, that regardless of where you came from, what you did before entering these walls, if you're in Christ, Ephesians 2 says that you collectively are the people of God. And we must therefore, Shema, respond accordingly. That is to say, there are many passages of Scripture that you are meant to tackle on your own, but this, this is meant to do together. Let's keep going. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit down in the house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and of your gates. So Deuteronomy 6 acts as a mission in which God is calling the people of Israel to live out. In a very real way, Moses is commissioning the people to keep their focus on loving God. For all the other commandments and regulations are to be attended through, through this lens. Notice there is no break, no change of subject in the passage. After God gives the instructions to love He tells the nation, the whole people, to impress these truths in the lives of their kids. So we're talking about how every kid needs a tribe. Those that are into note-taking, here will be our roadmap. It will be the philosophy of the tribe, or I'm sorry, the foundation of the tribe, the philosophy of the tribe, and the function of the tribe. Foundation, philosophy, and function, starting with the foundation. In Deuteronomy 6, God, through Moses, is making an appeal to the people that they are to live their entire lives fully devoted to loving God, heart, soul, and all their might. And as they do this, they're to teach it to the next generation. And Moses is not just making this appeal out of theory, but out of his own lived experience. Think about it this way. Moses himself was the proof of a tribe. If we go back to the beginning of the Moses saga, Exodus chapter 2, we're introduced to his biological mother, his sister, but then he was also adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And the mother and the sister, they stayed engaged in his story until his departure from Egypt. And then even after that, in the next stage of his life, a whole other family brought him in. They helped develop him. They uh, turned him into the leader that God wanted. So here is Moses. He's like the first, the world's first Renaissance man, a multicultural, multilingual, multi-social economic leader that was raised by a tribe. How incredible is it that the people had little to nothing in common, found a common purpose to raise up a man of God to bring about his great purposes. So here is Moses. He's reflecting on all of these voices in his life that were placed there so uh, he could be developed into the leader that God needed. And in the very next section of Deuteronomy 6, Moses is appealing to the people to continue to do the same thing. He says this, he said, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, how brought you out of the slavery. And we can do a similar reflection as well. Think back to the voices that invested in your story, your parents, your teachers, coaches, mentors, Sunday school teachers, pastors, grandparents. The foundation of the tribe is a shared experience that we are all the product of a tribe, and therefore we have the same opportunity to be that for the next generation. Now secondly, let's look at the philosophy of the tribe. 
And typically, when we think about the next generation, we use uh, the language of investment. Uh, From a monetary standpoint, it's not a very good investment. I would really encourage, if you want to, you know, multiply your dividends, uh, don't have a kid. But... From the kingdom of heaven standpoint, this is the greatest value proposition in human history. If you invest in just one kid's story, that kid's story will inevitably have the influence of thousands that are influenced in different degrees. Now, I don't claim to be a finance person. I did sell life insurance for a season. Uh, I was really bad at it. But I do know this. If you want to multiply your investments, you got to start early. If we want to see the next generation flourish in their role as the emerging church, the question isn't, should we invest our time, energy, resources, but how? And we can actually look at three different types of investment strategies or philosophies, as we'll call them today, in order to discern what might be helpful or destructive. The first two philosophies of investment are similar, although they have two uh, different incomes. The first investment philosophy is called insourcing. This is when an organization, or in our case, a family, it uses its own personnel, that's the parents, those that didn't know that, and resources and invests them in the life of their children. This is a great strategy because it embraces parental responsibility to oversee the development of every child. But where this falls short of God's design is it robs the children of a holistic view of the church and therefore the understanding of the full movement of God. That is, that kids will gain a very narrow understanding of faith. The second philosophy investment is similar, outsourcing. This is when an organization or family seeks resources from an outside or foreign source in place of the internal source. So that means instead of family, families discipling their own children, uh, they say the children's ministry can do that, right? Or the student ministry or someone else do it, right? Uh, sometimes it's grandparents. Sometimes it's talking cucumbers and tomatoes. (laughs) But the issue with this philosophy is it robs the child of the most influential relationship in their lives. That is parents. You have the greatest influence in your child's life. And passing on that opportunity is robbing them of one, one of the greatest testimonies a child can have. And that is that my parents always loved Jesus and it's all I've ever known, right? Although these philosophies of investment uh, have different outcomes, they stem from the same root problem, capacity. And this is what Moses felt in Numbers chapter 11. If you read through the Moses saga, uh, a lot of the time Moses, he comes off as like a father figure and the nation of Israel kind of like spoiled like kids. I don't know how to to say that. Um, So Moses was leading the people. He was investing all his time, resources, and attention. He was addressing all of their needs and they would not give this man a break. They would complain about everything. Literally, they were complaining about the food that God was supplying. Then they're like, oh, God's God's fire, it's burning a little bit out of control on the, on the edge of camp. Can you talk to him? And literally, they would not give him a break. And in Numbers 11, Moses hid his ceiling, and he, he, he expresses some frustration to the Lord. Starting in verses 11, we'll read 14 and 15 as well. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? I'm not able to carry this people alone. The burden's too heavy. If you will treat me like this, I'm going to paraphrase here, take me now 
If I find favor in your sight that I might not see my wretchedness. This is the weight of leadership. Yeah, I see like a few like uh, parents nodding their head like, yeah, I feel this twice last week. Um, I have a toddler at home and man, I just, it's, she, she has all the emotions all at the same time, like anger, frustration, happiness, excitement. It's, it's really hard to deal with. So I feel you, Moses, right? Uh, so Moses is coming to terms with the reality that he can't lead these people alone. And the reality is neither can we. I'm not advocating for parents to forsake their responsibility to disciple their children, but I am petitioning that perhaps they need some help. I'm also not telling you to put this on someone else. As a person that oversees our ministry to students, the burden is too heavy. For you to take your child to loop kids or our student ministry, to drop them off, say, hey, teach them everything they know about God, the Bible, the world, and do it within 75 minutes because after that it's nap time. We got to stay on that schedule. The burden is too heavy. So what's the answer? It might be the oldest and also newest philosophy of investment. Crowdsourcing, ooh. All right, so crowdsourcing is defined as obtaining resources by enlisting the service of a large number of people, either paid or unpaid, typically via the internet. Uh, We'll just ignore that last part, unless you're live streaming with us. Come crowdsource with us, come on guys. Uh, We see this strategy of crowdsourcing directly following Moses' failure in Numbers 11, where he tells God, you better come get these kids. And God's response is simply this, Moses, go find 70 people you trust and bring them with you outside the tabernacle and I'm gonna take some of your spirit of leadership and I'm gonna put it on them. So the philosophy of the tribe is simply this, if investing in the next generation is invaluable for the church and it's too heavy for a small group to carry, then make the group bigger. It sounds really, really basic. Uh, This is what we see in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul paints this picture of the various parts of the body coming together to serve each other, and then he gives a mission for that body. And I'm going to ask you guys to respond a little bit, a little crowd participation. So uh, to equip the saints, that is Christians, the church, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to, and say these next two words with me, mature manhood, oh, that, was, that was okay, uh, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be what? Children. You guys are, uh, uh, you guys stay with me. All right. Uh, we may no longer be children to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head into Christ. So God's design for the church was to become the tribe that every kid needs. It's too important for us to miss. The stakes are too high. You can't do this alone. Neither can I. We need to do this together. Speak the truth in love in order for every kid to grow up into the fullness of Christ. But David, what are you asking us to do? What, what are you asking us to sign up for? Do you all want us to fill out applications to be a Luke Kids worker? Are you asking us to go to Bulgaria with you? Uh, and no, logistically, that would be a nightmare. Please don't do that. Um, and also, that would be exactly opposite of the point that Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, that we are playing different parts to the same goal. So I'm going to lay this 
out quite simply, the function of the tribe. Uh, Regardless of where you're at, a single guy, an empty nester, uh, you have your own kids, you're a college student, what should we be doing to help the next generation? And I'm going to make this so simple that anyone with four fingers can do it. Engage, play, guide, and pray. Engage, play, guide, and pray. The first is engage. That means whenever possible, we are moving towards conversations with the next generation. Whether this be in the church or in your neighborhood, at a friend's house, whenever possible, look for opportunities to engage the next generation. And I want to address the obvious. Uh, Sometimes kids are very weird. (laughs) They're hard to talk to. Sometimes they're mean. The other day at the playground, uh, just quite frankly, a kid says, I'm afraid of this man. And I was like, well, I I don't blame you, right? Um, So they could be mean. But let me remind you, they are kids. They're still figuring out this life thing, right? And most of the time, they're not engaging in discussions, not because they don't want to, but they don't know how. By engaging them, you are having a conversation with the next generation um, to demonstrate their value. There's a story of a a 12-year-old who approached his pastor uh, one Sunday after church, and in his hand was an issue of Life magazine. And on the cover, there was a shocking picture just showing two starving children in Africa. And the kid asks, does God know about this? Does he know what's going to happen to these children? And this is the pastor's response. I I know you don't understand this, but yeah, God does. So the child walked away, rightfully so. He walked away from the church. He walked away from Christianity altogether. And then he became labeled as one of the most influential leaders and thinkers in the 21st century. This person's Steve Jobs, right? The pastor failed to identify that there was value in this conversation. To not only see the child, but recognize the value of engaging his story. Not just answering the questions, but being drawn into a relationship that meets the the child exactly where he's at and addresses some deep questions. This drastically changes the course of a child's life. Could you even imagine what Park Near North would look like if we did this well, right? If a child, a teen came here and we had people not just saying hi or interacting with them, but engaging them. Literally, people would be flocking to the space, families and teenagers alike. Don't let this floor intimidate you. Go downstairs, have a conversation. Or actually today, they're with us in the service. But remember, we're also talking about tribes, not villages. So it's not just about engaging kids at church. We have to spread far and wide. So Carlo Tamayo, he is one of our leaders in our student ministry. Shout out, Carlo. Uh, And he takes this role very seriously. So outside of the church, in various degree, he knows these groups of kids that, that are just begging to spend time with him. So not because he's cool or relevant, although honestly he is, but it's because he engages, he listens, he values their story. All right, engage, play. This one should be self-explanatory, but the reality is uh, when you share an experience with someone, you gain a greater sense of community. This is the very reason we play so many games in student ministry. When you take all your hats off, your parenting hat, your employment, your marriage, and you just say, we're human beings, let's share an experience together. Kids read that, and you build trust in that kid's story. 
If 16 years of serving in student ministry has taught me one thing, is that kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Spending time sharing an experience with a child, a team, it builds up credibility that you will have for the rest of that kid's life. So playing can be any shared experience. It can be a game. It could be checking out a musical. It could be serving in the community together. It could be taking a trip with their family, right? Anybody want to take a road trip with me and my three kids? You guys like Mary Poppins soundtrack? All right, great. Uh, So there are endless possibilities for you to share an experience with a kid. First is to engage. Second is to play. And third is to guide. To guide is simply be intentional about moving kids forward in their faith journey. Life is really hard to figure out, and none of us get it right the first time around, right? So do this for me really quick. Think of any movie in your head, right? In that movie, you can quickly decide who's the main character. Here's the hero, the heroine of the story, and they're the person living out the story. And then you have the person that is the guide in that story. That is the person helping the main character overcome their failures, their flaws, uh, the circumstances they're facing. So Rocky, he had Mickey. Katniss had Hamick. Batman has Alfred, really cool one. Uh, Luke Skywalker had Obi-Wan, and then he kind of disappeared. And then he had Yoda, and he kind of disappeared. And then he was a wreck, right? Uh, So guiding is engaging in the simple act of discipleship that Paul lays out for us when he was engaging the next generation in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this. He says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So it doesn't mean we have to have all the answers, but means that we're following what Deuteronomy lays out for us, and we invite kids into the regular rhythm of our life. The language it gives is waking up, walking around, sitting around, lounging in the house. If we open up our lives as example to demonstrate what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, and might, it drastically changes a kid's story. So the Barna Group is a research organization. It gives them really valuable data over the past couple decades. Um, and while the church attendance and engagement has been a valuable uh, Uh, metric for students and teens, the number one indicator that a kid will walk faithfully with Jesus past high school is if they have one person outside of their home that they can trust with spiritual discussions. And the trends are indicating, uh, I'm sorry, I could be the best teacher in the world that teaches every doctrine clearly and empowers teens to live out their faith and do such in a way that fits every family's schedule, but it means nothing if there is no relationship. And the trends indicate that teens are walking away from their faith earlier and earlier. The reality is we need more voices in the kid's life. We need voices from a variety of background and experiences, voices that are young and energetic, voices that are old and seasoned, full of wisdom. Uh, We need voices from every social economic class, voices that are from every season of life, voices from every background and experience to create a holistic view of the church. So engage, play, guide, and pray. And this would be a great opportunity to just pause and say, I recognize that the application started off really surface level. I asked you to say hi to some kids and to engage with them, and now you're discipling them for life, right? Um, But there is a weight here, right? It's a good weight, but there's a weight, which is why we need to pray more than ever. There is a reality that we are at the war for the hearts of our children. There is a spiritual reality that we have to fight for those souls of our kids through prayer. We could design the greatest next generation ministry in the world, but without prayer, we've already lost. 
So we need to cover our kids in prayer. As you grow in knowledge and relationship with kids, allow your prayers for them to grow as well. And don't let this just be a private thing that you just do on your own, but actually pray with them. Pray with their families. Pray for their parents, because I will be the first to admit, none of us know what we're doing. We need your prayers for God to guide us, to help us to be the parents that our kids need. And more than anything, we need God to reveal himself to every kid, to every teen, that they would engage in the abundant and eternal life that Christ alone gives. Many of you are probably saying, man, forget the kids. I want this for myself, right? And I feel that too. What you are experiencing is a God-given desire to be a part of something bigger, to be a part of a family. You were made for this type of community. This is exactly why Jesus himself invites us to become a child, He knows that this isn't just about the next generation, it's about you. He knows you. He sees you. This is precisely why he came to earth, lived the perfect life you and I couldn't. He died the death that we deserve in order that we would be considered children of God. This is the community we were made for. The reality is is sin broke that. It doesn't take a genius to realize our relationships are really messed up and mucky. That's because we are broken people dealing with broken people. But the good news is that God intervened. He broke himself so that we don't have to live this life wandering and alone. I'll end with this. Some years ago, a magazine carried a series of pictures that were graphically depicted this tragic story. The first picture, it was of a vast wheat field in western Kansas. The second showed a distressed mother sitting in the farmhouse in the center of the wheat field. The accompanied story explained that why she wasn't looking, her four-year-old son had wandered away from the house and into the field. The mother and father, they looked and looked all day, but the little guy, he was too short to see or be seen over the wheat. The third picture showed dozens of friends and neighbors showing up. They heard of the boy's plight. They came together. They joined hands in order to create this huge human chain to go about the field looking for this boy. The final picture was of a heartbroken father holding his lifeless son. He'd been found too late. He died of exposure. And the caption underneath read this. Oh God, if we had only joined hands sooner. May this never be true of us. May we never miss this. We have a chance to join hands, to be the tribe that God has called us to be, for they're more wandering. They're searching for their way back home. Thousands in our city are looking for their purpose, their reason for existence. There are those on both sides of this crisis that are, that are desperate to experience the grace and peace of Jesus through the church. And the church, this tribe, we've been given the directive to bind together in order that we might bring the message of love, truth, and forgiveness to a generation in need. God wants to use us together to change the next generation. I hope you're with me. Would you guys pray? God, I want to thank you for Frank Nichols, Michael Austick, Dave Smith, Scott and Sarah Strzok, Eric Green, Amy, Ben, Earl, Wilma, Thomas, Frank, Jacob. 
God, I could spend all day recounting your goodness to me, the tribe that you gave me. This room, we would be sitting here all day recollecting the countless people that invested in us. And so we pray that we would engage well, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, and might, and that we would invite the next generation into our lives in such a way that might experience you. We know we can't do this alone. We need each other, and more than that, we need your Holy Spirit to empower us to do the work that is far beyond our ability. We love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.